Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. I'm James Conlon, Richard Seaver Music Director of Los Angeles Opera. We continue our series now with Opera and Catharsis. As you know, at the moment, we at L.A. Opera are not able to perform in our normal venues for you. So the situation calls for us to find new and creative ways to communicate and to foster the nurturing role that music provides for all of us. You and I together contribute also to the maintenance of the tradition and the spirit of opera every time we listen in our homes, share with our families and friends, read about, discuss, or just think about opera. I want to consider with you some very important aspects of how music and opera enhance our very being, especially in difficult times. So let's get started. As we listen to the beginning of Giuseppe Verdi's Otello, his penultimate opera, Greatest Tragedy, and the second of his celebrated Shakespearean trilogy. A violent storm has broken out as the Cypriots on land watch their fleet, commanded by Otello, battle a mortal enemy close to shore. Music is always important, but especially in times of need. Music inspires, music heals, it consoles and opens us up to the universe. It distracts and entertains. Music empathizes, reflects our emotions and distills them into art. It can perform any of these functions or all of them at once. beneficial ways in which operas reflect situations and dilemmas similar to our own. The operatic experience can reveal emotions that are universal for all peoples and all times, including our own.
As the boats are brought safely into shore, everyone rejoices. And the storm has calmed. Opera distills those feelings, and that distillation can, well, heal, inspire, entertain, distract, open the universe up to us, meditate, and empathize. Now I want to isolate one aspect of opera that derives directly from Greek theater. Opera was born in Italy in late 16th century Florence. The Florentines' ambition was to reinstate Greek drama in its fullness. In fact, some would say that the origin of opera was really ancient Greece. The Greeks celebrated religious holidays with drama. It started simply one actor wearing masks, later more characters, and later the chorus who would react and comment. The vestiges of this Greek chorus persisted well into the end of 19th century opera. Greeks divided their plays into tragedies and comedies. The opera maintained these two categories. With tragedy developed the concept of catharsis, originally meaning a purging or to purge, whose aim, Aristotle tells us, is to arouse the spectator's feelings of pity and terror and to purify him or her so that they would leave cleansed and uplifted with an enhanced appreciation of humankind and the gods. In our current dilemma, catharsis is another weapon in our arsenal to keep our spirits and morale high. Opera can help us with this in its own special way. Let's start with Mozart's Idomeneo in the era of ancient Greece. In a scene similar to that which we just heard in Otello, the people of the island of Crete are frightened by the outbreak of a violent storm at sea. Neptune, the god of the sea, is angry.
Idomeneo, the king of Crete, asks Neptune to punish him alone, but he also defies the god, declaring that he does not merit obedience if he should choose to cruelly punish others. But the storm continues unabated, and the people of Crete flee. But Neptune eventually relents and grants peace to Crete. Idomeneo will abdicate and pass on the kingdom to his son. All of the conflicts are resolved. Mozart restores the universe to a beautiful equilibrium, and the people celebrate. the story of Idomeneo and Mozart's music, we have experienced catharsis. Each operatic work we love and experience is a universe unto itself that lasts a few hours. By traversing that universe together with its multiple characters, we experience the wide panoply of human emotions that makes us who we are. It connects us to them and to ourselves. How can opera benefit us all in a time of universal distress? In what way can we find spiritual sustenance and insight into a present situation by referring back to the rich body of operatic literature, even as, and perhaps particularly because, we are confined to our homes? Despite the closure of theaters, we need to remember that opera does not cease to exist, nor must it remain silent. Fortunately, the airways, the internet, recordings, or the simple act of reading about opera can be a source of inspiration, of intellectual and emotional energy. Let's take another example from Mozart, this time not ancient Greece, but their counterparts in ancient Rome. Again, Mozart shows us the awestruck populace facing a common disaster, both natural, even in supernatural, as well as political. A great fire has broken out in Rome and is destroying the city, and under cover of that fire, a plot is played out to assassinate the good Emperor Tito. Under threat of catastrophe, each character articulates his or her individual preoccupations, much as we do when we go about our lives under cosmic threat. Not 
When news comes that Emperor Tito has been murdered, all react with sorrow and shock. In a remarkable passage, similar to one in the Mozart Requiem, all express their despair. Our star has been extinguished. Tito, the bringer of peace, is dead. But the plot to murder Tito was not successful. He survives. The conspirators are revealed, and Tito gives a generous pardon to all. The populace celebrates not just the end of conflict, but the magnanimous and enlightened gesture of its leader. Oh, my God. 
The distance between opera and sacred music is not as far as one might imagine. Every society has lived with apocalyptic fears, and so we do today. The medieval Roman Catholic Church incorporated the recounting of the end of time in a long 13th century poem, referencing it into the Requiem Mass for the Dead. The Day of Universal Judgment is called, in Latin, Dies Irae, Day of Wrath. Here is Mozart's setting of the Dies Irae, written three months after La Clemenza di Tito and shortly before his own premature death. Mozart will, by the end of the Requiem, offer us catharsis, with a greater degree of comfort reflecting his personal faith. Somewhat less consoling is the vision of Giuseppe Verdi, himself less of a believer, though it reflects a profound understanding of the Roman Catholic worldview into which he was born. Verdi wrote the Requiem in 1874 to honor the great Italian 19th century author Alessandro Manzoni. His great epic novel, called The Betrothed, I Promessi Sposi, is a monument of modern Italian literature, as widely read and revered as Dante's Divine Comedy. It devotes three chapters of its 500-page panoramic depiction of Italian 17th century life to the devastating plague of 1630. Manzoni, The Betrothed, cathartic for us, exceptionally. But back to Verdi. It is easy to feel the influence of Michelangelo's great fresco of The Last Judgment. It is also easy to hear the kinship with the seemingly apocalyptic storm from Otello to which we just listened. Verdi's vision is not comforting, but nevertheless, through the medium of his profound music, experiencing fear, sorrow, isolation, and even terror, we are renewed through catharsis. Nine years earlier, in 1865, Verdi revised Macbeth, his first Shakespearean opera. His great empathy for the Scottish refugees, driven from their homes by Macbeth, found voice in this magnificent chorus. O Patria Oppressa.
But here too, as in Mozart, the opera concludes in celebration and exhilaration. Macbeth's tyranny and cruelty are defeated and the rightful king will take the throne. Deliverance for all and catharsis for us, the listeners. heard musical examples of the mature Verdi. Let's turn now to the young man. His third opera, Nabucco, premiered when he was only 28 years old. It catapulted him to prominence where he has remained ever since. He chose a biblical subject which featured the captivity and eventual liberation of the Hebrew people from under the tyrannical dominance of a Babylonian king. The chorus of the Hebrew people in captivity, Va Pensiero, immediately made its mark. It was deeply felt by the populace of the Italian city-states, most of whom were under foreign domination. To this day, this melody is so loved by the Italian people that unofficially it has served as a type of national anthem. Despite its sorrowful roots, it carries a prayer and a message of hope. May a melody from the Lord give us fortitude in our suffering. Their prayer is answered, and the Hebrews, together with the reformed and penitent King Nabucco of Babylon, praise Immenso Yehovah.
Another biblical story with a French twist. Again, the Hebrews under oppression, this time under the dominance of the Philistines. Camille Saint-Saëns, 1877, Samson and Delilah, was conceived as an oratorio before being turned into a stage work. It is almost as hybrid in its way as the Verdi Requiem, which was officially a sacred text, but dramatized on par with the Italian master's operatic and theatrical genius. It would be highly inaccurate to suggest that every opera has a happy ending. Far from it. But the beauty is that we can experience and benefit from catharsis, nevertheless, even more so from a moving and poignant tragedy. At the beginning of Samson and Delilah, the Hebrews bemoan their fate, and it will take Samson to rouse them from their despair to revolt against their oppressors. Israël, écoute la prière. Hear the prayer. De tes enfants t'implorant à genoux, of your children imploring you on their knees. Take pity on your people and their misery. sa douleur des armes ton courroux that their pain disarms your anger The essentials of the story centers on Samson's attraction to Delilah and his submission to her charms. She cuts his hair, thus depriving him of his God-given strength, delivers him to the Philistines, who then blind and imprison him. But catharsis comes to us in the end when Samson prays to the God of Israel to restore his former strength. He avenges God and his people while sacrificing his own life. He summons his strength, pushes against the pillars supporting the Philistine temple, destroying both temple, the Philistine populace, as their Bacchanalian revel reaches fever pitch. A sense of avenging justice partially mitigates the sufferings of the Hebrew people, offering, if not joy, a sense of satisfaction.
Another populace in distress is the Russian people, true protagonist of Modest Mussorgsky's epic opera Boris Godunov. It was written in 1869, just three years after the first production of Alexander Pushkin's play, upon which the opera is based. The play was written in 1825 and published in 1831, but remained unperformed for many years. The play is often referred to as the Russian Macbeth. Tsar Boris reigned from 1598 until 1605, during which time there was a terrible famine. In this scene, in front of the Cathedral of St. Basil in Moscow, the people beg the Tsar for sustenance. Bread, bread, give us bread, dear Father, for the sake of Christ. Neither Mussorgsky nor Pushkin offer a happy ending. The last word comes from the mouth of the holy fool. He is called Yorodivy in Russian, often translated, though inadequately, as the simpleton, the innocent, or even the idiot. He is a staple in Russian culture and tradition, considered blessed and saintly, whom no one may mistreat, including the Tsar. After he sings his final lamentation, the orchestra takes up his grieving dirge. It seems to lead us into eternity. Chillingly expressive, haunting in its power, cathartic in full for the listener. Another community in distress, another holy fool of a different stripe. Richard Wagner's Parsifal. The Knights of the Holy Grail have been deprived of both physical and spiritual sustenance by the refusal of their leader, Amfortas, 
to periodically uncover the grail as his civic and spiritual responsibility dictate. In the final act of Parsifal, in an extraordinary moment, two processions converge, one bearing the earthly remains of Titorel, patriarch of the community, and the other, a litter, carrying his physically and spiritually tormented son, Amfortas. An antiphonal male chorus delivers a chilling climax of despair, a blood-curdling cry worthy of Edvard Munch's The Scream. The outburst mixes grief with aggressive anger directed at Amfortas, who is blamed for allowing his father to die unnourished. Like the people of Crete, the ancient Romans, the Scottish refugees, the biblical Hebrews, and the impoverished of medieval Russia, the Knights of the Grail is another community in despair. Parsifal, the holy fool turned redeemer, saves the community, unlocks the grail, restores the knights to their spiritual and physical well-being, and, in a Christ-like manner, delivers salvation to all. And for the listener, after a four-hour-plus immersion in the baths of Wagner's final masterpiece, we have gained not just catharsis, but a baptism of spiritual renewal. Thank you for joining me. I'm James Conlon, Richard Seaver, Music Director of Los Angeles Opera. We'll see you next time. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>